Welcome to episode number 37 of Talking Mopars. This is a special episode dedicated to the memory of John C. Moyer. Today, we're going to tell the story of John's 1970 Plymouth Superbird. I became aware of this car three years ago, and I actually wrote a story that was intended for my blog, but it was never released publicly. So why not release it right here on Talking Mopars? I hope you enjoy hearing this story as much as I'm going to enjoy sharing it with you. And I decided that because this is a dedication episode, I wanted to make sure it stood on its own two feet. So we're going to suspend all the other segments for this week and just share this story about an heirloom car, a 1970 Plymouth Superbird. And who doesn't love a good Superbird story? So without further ado, if you are a Mopar enthusiast, then you are in the right place. Don't go anywhere. You're tuned into the best Mopar enthusiast-driven podcast on planet Earth, and I am your host, Chris Albrecht, better known as the Mopar Hunter, and this is Talking Mopars. You're listening to Talking Mopars with the Mopar Hunter, your direct connection to all things Mopar. Anytime someone talks about owning a Mopar wing car, people tend to disbelieve. Most likely due to the rarity of the cars, but perhaps envy has a little part also. I always lean towards curiosity rather than disbelief, so I decided to follow up with a passing comment left three years ago on the Mopar Hunter Facebook page by a young man named Nathan Moyer. I was privileged to hear the entire story of Nathan's Superbird, and let me tell you folks, it's a great one. You can tell that Nathan is a car guy when you start talking to him. After all, he's had quite a few cool ones, but none compared to the Superbird in terms of sentimental value. It's the type of story that becomes legend in the Mopar community. Nathan's 1970 Plymouth Superbird was originally owned by his father, John C. Moyer. It has only 53,000 original miles, and it is a numbers-matching car. It's equipped with a bench seat and a column-shifted 727. It's powered by a 440 with the infamous six-barrel carburetor setup. The Superbird's early history is what really shapes its status as legend. John grew up in the small town of Kanajahari, New York. In late 1969, he saw a Superbird on a car lot in upstate New York that hadn't garnered much interest from potential buyers. This worked out perfectly for John, because he had his sights set on the Superbird. For a little over a year, he saved up working on his family's farm to earn enough money to buy the car. And in 1971, at only 18 years old, he became the owner of the brand new Tor Red 1970 Plymouth Superbird for a little over $4,200. I couldn't imagine owning a Superbird, let alone one at such a young age. With great power comes great responsibility, and John learned the hard way. In his first week of ownership, while demonstrating what his new car was capable of, John got a little overzealous. He ended up sliding the car into a curb, damaging one of the Superbird's wheels, which resulted in him replacing them with a set of OE wheels from another Superbird a few towns over. John also had tales of high-speed runs with other muscle cars on the small town's main drag. Local law enforcement would actually clock the young drivers and report their speed back to them. What a crazy time to be alive. John was also able to squeeze 142 miles per hour out of the Superbird. Sounds like an interesting little town, to say the least. Sometime in the 70s, the car had a transmission rebuild, most likely due to all of John's spirited driving. John almost hacked up the Superbird's hood when a friend wrecked their GTX and offered him the air grabber. If it wasn't for the fact that the insurance company wasn't going to pay unless all the parts of the GTX were on it, the Superbird may have had an air grabber from a GTX added to it. When John was in his 20s, he held a position as a chief loan officer for a private investment firm in Pennsylvania. He was still daily driving the Superbird and would drive to people's homes to collect on defaulted loans. 
What a sight that must have been. John was making a good living for himself and nearly traded in his Superbird on a brand new De Tomaso Pantera. If the numbers had been right that day at the dealership, this story may have never been told. John eventually packed up and headed out to San Diego, California for work. He left the Superbird behind because he hadn't intended on permanently relocating, but alas, the position ended up becoming permanent. A couple years passed and John decided to pay his father to bring the car to him rather than have it shipped. Since the car had been sitting for a while, John specifically told his father to have the carburetors rebuilt and tuned before making the trek from Pennsylvania. His father ignored John's instructions, instead spending the money on beer and some other things not worth mentioning. He drove the Superbird out west the way it was. The car did successfully make the trip, but was billowing black smoke from running rich the entire journey. They didn't have great fuel mileage when tuned correctly, let alone when not tuned at all. Needless to say, efficiency on that road trip was less than stellar. John's car had remained mostly original for all 44 years of his ownership. The only exceptions being regular maintenance, the aforementioned transmission work replaced wheels, and a repaint of the original tour red color sometime in the 80s. He also retained all documentation and service records during his reign as owner. The meticulous record keeping shows he not only loved the car, but appreciated how special it was. Keeping it throughout his life showed how much the car meant to him. It had accompanied John on his journey through life until the day it was parked sometime in the mid-80s. It sat in a garage for over 30 years. When John passed away in recent years, the Superbird became his son's. Nathan is a young working man starting a family of his own. He's keeping the Superbird safe and largely out of public eye for now. When people in the car community hear about rare Mopars such as wing cars, there's always a flood of interest and questions. Offers are made, but Nathan insists that the car isn't going anywhere. Nathan's plan is to keep the Superbird and pass it down to his kids. They will hopefully do the same for generations to come. He does have some plans to get the car running in relatively short order. He intends to get new tires and do a burnout as a redneck tribute to honor his dad. I'm sure John would approve. Nathan would ideally like to have the Superbird on the road sooner rather than later, and that's the plan. Nathan has no intentions of isolating the car once it's brought back to life. He's going to drive it to local car shows and trailer it to the ones further away from his home in San Diego. He wants the Superbird to be a piece of Mopar history that is driven, shared, and enjoyed. Not one of those vehicles that is untouchable, stored away, housed in a museum, or sold on the auction block. He would even like to push the Superbird's limits on an autocross course for, in his words, the sheer idiocy of it. Hey, they were meant to be driven, right? It's clear that he cherishes the Superbird as not only a family heirloom, but for how special the car is. That's why he decided to leave the car unrestored and preserve it as a time capsule of the 70s and 80s, proudly displaying all of the vehicle's flaws from the nearly 50 years since leaving the assembly line. He wants to enjoy it as his father had all those years ago. He mentioned the desire to build a Charger Daytona tribute car, making modern-day modifications for enhanced performance with no guilt of altering an authentic wing car. That sounds like a plan to me. Nearly every gearhead I've met has stories about cars and their family. Those cars are what fuel the love for American car culture. A lot of these stories include cars that end up becoming the ones that, quote-unquote, get away. Thankfully, that's not the case with the Moyer family Superbird. I respect that despite the Superbird's great market value, Nathan is determined to keep it in the family, choosing its storied history over monetary gain. Stories like this one turn simple legacies into priceless legends. And that was the story of the Moyer Superbird, a legendary legacy. I'd like to thank my friend Nathan for allowing me to share his Superbird story, as well as his dad's story. All too often you hear stories about heirloom cars that, unfortunately, you know, over time, Mother Nature takes its toll and the cars basically end up disintegrating into the ground. It's really unfortunate, especially if a car means that much to somebody that, 
you know, in the back of their mind, they always think, oh, I'm going to get to it one of these days. I'm going to get to it one of these days. And they never do. And the cars end up rotting away. I like to hear stories about cars that, you know, if people get an heirloom car and they finally decide, you know what, I'm never going to get to this car. So they end up giving it to somebody who can or selling it to somebody who can. That to me is really cool, you know, because it can't be easy getting rid of an heirloom car, especially if it holds a certain amount of sentimental value. You know what I mean? And I like to hear stories like Nathan's where, you know, this car meant a lot to his dad and, you know, in turn means a lot to him and he has it now and he could easily sell that car, you know, put six figures or so in his pocket and the rest is history. And the car goes into somebody else's hands. But Nathan is determined, like I said, to keep it in the family. He wants this to be the heirloom car that passes through generations. And I hope that his children and his children's children and their children understand how important this car is to their family. And I'm rooting for Nathan. I really want to see him get this car back on the road. And I'll be following this story every step of the way. He's going to keep me posted. And who knows, I might even fly down. To San Diego to see this car in person someday. And if that happens, then you're going to see it too. But until then, you can enjoy some of the pictures that I posted on social media. And I really hope you enjoyed the story. Once again, thank you, Nathan, for allowing me to share it. That's all, folks. Another episode of Talking Mopars is in the books. For more information about this podcast or to listen and subscribe to the show, please visit TalkingMopars.com. And don't forget that you can send me your stories, questions, comments, complaints, suggestions, and everything else on your Mopar-addicted mind to chris at TalkingMopars.com or leave me a voice message on my voicemail box at 209-28-MOPAR to hear yourself on the show. Also, don't forget that if you like this show and you'd like to help support it, you can help me by visiting the Talking Mopars merch shop. You can purchase cool things like t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, mugs, and more. Ordering from the merch shop is a great way to help the show, and you get something cool in return. You can't beat that. Sounds like a good deal to me. Just follow the link on the show notes or episode description, or just jump over to TalkingMopars.com and find my store. So that does it. And don't worry, folks. Next week, everything will be back to normal. My studio will be all set up and complete, and we're going to get this show on the road once again. That's it, my friends. Until we talk again, I am your host, Chris Albrecht, and that was Talking Mopars. Thank you for listening to Talking Mopars, your direct connection to all things Mopar. Until next time, remember, no Mopar left behind.